Welcome back to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Today's guest is Chad Beckett, running for circuit judge in Illinois' 6th Judicial Circuit. Chad, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. The 6th Circuit consists of Champaign, DeWitt, Douglas, Macon, Moultrie, and Pyatt counties. Some circuit judges are elected by voters in all six counties, but the position you're seeking is determined only by the voters of Champaign County. Can you explain a little bit about how they become resident circuit judges? What exactly does that even mean? It's been said that a page of history is worth a volume of logic. And in this case, one has to go through quite a bit of history to figure out how we got to this point on the judges that we have in Champaign County. As far as I can tell, until about 1995, we had two judges who were just elected in Champaign County who spend most of their time in Urbana, and two other judges who were elected by all six counties of that circuit. Then they added two more in 95 or 6, and now we are at the point where there are six judges who are elected who spend their time in Urbana. They could go other places within the circuit if they had to, but that's where their offices are, and that's where they hold court 99 Point nine percent of the time. And so a resident circuit judge only has to submit to the voters of one county, while the other three circuit judges were elected by the voters of all six counties in our circuit. And it's been that way up till the present, and that will change in the future because of a new law that was just passed this year. But the position that I'm running for has, as long as it's been in existence, been only elected by the voters of Champaign County. What led this position to become vacant? About two years ago, a little more than two years ago, actually, Circuit Judge Heidi Ladd announced her retirement. This happened early on, I believe in January or February of 2020. It wasn't effective immediately. It was supposed to take effect in the middle of the year, but her announcement allowed for the process to start to select a temporary replacement. And because of the timing of that, it created a vacancy that was going to be not just temporary until that election that fall, but an election that would occur two years later. With her retirement, there was a committee put together by the then Supreme Court Justice for our area, which is Rita Garman, who just retired. And from that selection process, there was a temporary judge appointed. His name is Sam Lamentato. And now the election that is called for by statute is to take place this November. We both went through a primary process where I am the Democratic candidate for this position and Sam Lamentato running to keep the position that he has is the Republican. Both of you obviously have law degrees, but what exactly do you need in order to be considered for this position? There is a very basic set of requirements according to the Illinois Constitution. One is that you be 21 years of age, that you be a resident, and that you have a law degree, which is a good idea. And for those who really want to have detail, I have written a fairly extensive article on my website that expresses the history of the circuit court in Illinois. And I would encourage people to take a look at that. But the requirements have changed over the years, dating back over 200 years. At one point, you just had to be a warm body living in Illinois, pretty much. And that would be all it would take. What's your personal background, your upbringing, your education? Tell me a little bit about that. I was born and raised in Champaign-Urbana. I was born at Carl Hospital and 
it was this little offshoot of the main clinic that they then tore down 10 years later because it got in the way of their main entrance for patients. So that's a little sad, but that's how far I go back. And we moved from tiny house to tiny house, got successively bigger. I was a resident of Urbana for much of my early childhood. And like you, I understand we both went to Yankee Ridge. I don't think we managed to see each other at that time, but we both had the great experience involved from that school. It really was a cosmopolitan school because at that time, at least, then it was populated not only by the children of professors and laborers and just everyday folks whose parents worked in offices, but it was multinational. I had kids in my class who were from India. I had Korean children, Iranian children. The religious aspects of it were terrific. There were three Jewish children in my class. I remember they got to get out on high holy days, and I was jealous of that. The library, I mean, to this day, it was the best library experience I've ever seen for children anywhere. They had a librarian at Anki Ridge. Her name was Miss Shelley. I know her name is a little bit longer than that, but I always knew her as Miss Shelley. And she was just this terrific person. And every time we would go to the library, she was just full of vigor and positivity. All that whole package together kind of stuck with me about how we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to interact with each other how we're supposed to treat others. That was the big message is treat everyone the same. That's right. For a lot of people, it's just platitudes. It's something that you say that everybody's equal and that we treat each other well. And then there's people that live it. And, you know, our teachers do that. Our teachers do that more than anybody. And Miss Shelley, from a young age, was kind of the person that really showed that for me first. I took that with me going forward. And we continued to move back and forth in Champaign-Urbana. I spent the rest of my teenage years in Champaign. My folks moved back there went to Champaign Central High School. I know that probably bothers a lot of people who went to Urbana, but hey, that's where they lived. That's where I went. Went to the U of I. I got a degree in history and speech communications. I spent a year abroad in Scotland my junior year and came back here and got right into working with my dad, just like I said. My wife, who was also a townie, we met in high school and we were together for eight years before we got married. So gosh, we've been together over 33 years now. And we've raised two great kids, Callum and Aiden. It's surprising to me that our paths have not crossed until now. Let's back up for a second. What led you to want to be on the bench? At what point did you decide, I want to be a lawyer and then become a judge? What I can remember is that from a very early age, and I think probably from the age of five and maybe even even earlier, I would spend a great deal of time at my father's law practice. My dad, Steve Beckett, has been a lawyer since 1973. I was born the year before that. And at that time, the only way that you could do your work was to be in the office, not like we do now where you can pretty much do your work anywhere. All the law books were there, all the volumes of cases and statutes. You had to look at them physically. You had a typewriter. You didn't have a computer. There was no such thing as the internet. There was just the need to physically be in that office. And so late at night, he'd be working because he worked very, very hard, very late hours for most of the first 20, 30 years of his practice. And so that's when I got to see my dad. Because without that, I probably wouldn't see him very much for the first several years of my life. And I liked what I saw. When I go during the day, I would see the folks in the office, the other lawyers, the secretaries, the paralegals doing their work. And it's hard to really describe, but I began from a very early age understanding what they were saying, the kinds of things that they were doing, or at least echoes of it. And I thought, I'd really like to do this. 
And coupled with the fact that it was my dad, who I you know I love very much, I just have always had for any conscious period of time thought, I want to work with my dad. And so that's what I've done. And it carried on really all the way through grade school, high school, college. I've only really ever had one intention as a profession was to be a lawyer and to be in practice with my dad, which I've been fortunate enough to do. Now we're almost at the point where he may retire, but for now anyway, we've gone from one extreme to the other where I'm the little boy in his office to now he's an employee working for me, semi-retired. It's been great, and I'm very, very pleased that I've been able to do that. You've run for circuit judge before. You handily won Champaign County. What is up with the demographic makeup, or what happened with the rest of the counties? The demographics of our circuit are fairly polarized between the really the one county that I live in, that we live in, Champaign County, and four out of five of the others, and really even all five now. Four years ago, Champaign County expressed, I think, a general rejection of national politics and statewide politics being the dysfunction that was going on in Springfield and a rejection of what was going on nationally with the aftermath of the election of President Trump. I don't pretend to believe that I am so popular myself that the folks came out and said, well, we need to elect Chad Beckett over his opponent. But I was benefiting of the fact that I have lived here all my life and I know really a lot of people who have had the opportunity to have me help them either in need of a lawyer or otherwise, or just because we've been part of the same community and we've done things with our kids or extracurricular activities. But that propelled me and just about everyone else that ran as a Democrat to succeed and succeed well, with the exception of me and, of course, Ramona Sullivan, who had to submit to the will of all six of those counties. Now, four of the other counties... Douglas, DeWitt, Pyatt, and Moultrie are fairly small. They don't have very large populations, and they're, I think they're less than 10,000 for each of them. Douglas is a little bit bigger than that. And they have, over the years, shifted very strongly towards the Republican point of view, to the extent they're not already there. And they were going through just the opposite. I feel that they were rejecting the possibility of someone like Governor Pritzker taking office And this was something that we learned was also a phenomenon in Macon County. Macon County was thought was going to be very close, but in fact, it turned out not to be. There was only one office holder or seeker, I should say, who won Macon County as a Democrat, and it was the sheriff candidate. And he won initially after a brief recount by two votes, which was then thrown out a year or so later, so that in the event, nobody won as a Democrat in that county or the other four small counties. And it just swamped the result for Ramona and myself. So that despite the fact that, yes, Champaign County is where both of those positions actually do their jobs, where they handle court cases for Champaign County, it was the voters of those five other counties who ultimately had the final say as to who gets to decide things here in Champaign County. That's tough to take, but it's also the law. That was the way the law was set up. And so the opportunity has presented itself to run for a resident position, which, as we said, is just Champaign County. 
And of course, I thought that that was an opportunity for me to finish what I had started and to try to give the residents of Champaign County, frankly, what they asked for. I'm very fortunate to be in a position to do that. Does incumbency matter at all since your opponent is already on the bench or it really doesn't matter in this type of race? Incumbency is like a lift in your shoe. It gives you perhaps a little bit of a spring in your step and it can't be denied that a person who has been on the bench for two years is going to be able to truthfully say, I've already done this and I know what I'm doing. And assuming that this person has not utterly failed to do what they set out to do, it'd be hard not to have more experience than when you started out. But let's put the shoe on the other foot, if I can continue with that metaphor. If I had been fortunate to be the one selected, well, then I would have had two years of training. And it is training. It isn't just sitting on a bench. They actually send you away to judge school where they teach you how to do this. And then, of course, I'd be the one entitled to put the word judge in my campaign materials. And I'd be the one allowed to put a robe on for campaign materials. So, of course, I haven't been doing that and I don't do that. But yes, in a very practical sense, in a visual sense, a candidate who already has the job has a leg up, so to speak, which certainly is something that they're taking advantage of in this case. You have a lot of contacts that you know on both sides of the aisle. What is some of the good, helpful advice that they've given you over the years about becoming a judge? I've had judges pretty much telling me what to do for the last 25 years, either officially or unofficially. The ones who have done so on the bench have been instructive both in how helpful they've been in some occasions and in others where they've given me an example of a way to behave that I've said, you know, I don't want to do that. And I think I could hopefully do something better. I'll try to focus on the positive ones. And pretty much all of those are local. Judge Arnold Blockman provided a very steady and positive presence on the bench. And every day he starts out his hearings, particularly those that have many, many cases on the call, as they say, by explaining exactly for the people there what's going to happen and why it's going to happen. Like if we're going to logistically handle cases with the people who have lawyers first, it's not because they're more important, but because they have other responsibilities and we want to try to have a more efficient system of justice. And you don't have to say that, but he did and he does. That's just a small example, but it would carry on and also the activities that really involve the dispensation of justice, the way he would carry himself when he would talk to the litigants and with his rulings with the lawyers and just his attitude when he was off the bench, just a very positive, very even keeled and jovial personality, somebody who truly appreciated what he had. And the other example that I would give that's similar to that, that really sticks with me, is that of Mike Jones. Arnold Blockman was elected as a Democrat. Mike Jones was elected as a Republican in the 90s. They both were in the 90s, actually. And I can remember an occasion when we had a contested case, and we were trying to do some sort of scheduling. We were at a status hearing. We were trying to schedule something that was meaningful, either a motion hearing or it might have actually been the trial. And when we were asking whether he would be available, he quipped almost offhand, but it's something that stuck with me. I'm going to try to paraphrase it. I'm available at your convenience. The people of 
this county have elected me to one of the best positions in the world. And my job is to show up and be attentive and to give everyone the same level of dedication and attention as everyone else. And that's kind of stuck with me too. My hope is that as a judge, I will clarify the process so that anyone, including those that have never been there before, a lot of people have hoped that they never have to go back after the first occasion, know what's happening and have a clear idea of what's going to happen. And that I treat those people the same as everybody else, that every person that comes through the court system will be like the first case that I ever have. They all deserve the same level of attention, and I will endeavor to give them that. Do you know what types of cases that you will see, or do you have sort of a diverse docket? Do you know that yet? Technically, it is up to the presiding judge of the county where we are located. So that means that the assignments are allocated by our presiding judge, who is Randy Rosenbaum. As a practical matter, though, if I am successful, the person who is no longer going to be a judge is going to be my opponent. I would be surprised if my first assignment was not to at least temporarily pick up where he left off and handle the docket that he controls, which is the family law cases. And that would be fine because I've handled family law cases for the entirety of my practice. I've have a lot of currency with that area of the law, and I'd be happy to do that. But there'll be other cases that will be on my brief. I'm sure I will take a rotation for arraignment court on the weekends, even if that's not my primary assignment. There will be people who go on vacation and might need me to handle motion calls for civil cases, might require that I handle the routine status pretrials for criminal cases. I'd be surprised if I got thrown into the deep end, so to speak, and was told, okay, you'll be handling felony criminal trials right off the bat, that would be a, a surprise. Again, there's some training that's involved in that. But as soon as I receive that, I'm sure that I'd be able to handle that as well. I would bet that probably for the first year or so, I'd be handling people getting divorced and other matters related to that. Family court is really heavy. And when you step off the bench, Judge Beckett, when you are done with your day, what do you enjoy doing in your spare time in order to unload some of the mental stressors of the day? It's getting harder and harder to look at, you know, answering a question like that in the context of the pandemic. I would have given you a different answer before March of 2020. But I will try to both tell you what I do now and what I hope to do as we get further and further away from the pandemic. These days, I have been focused primarily on my legal practice and at the end of the day, spending as much time as I can with my family, which is my wife, Tara, of 25 years, and our boys. I have a 19-year-old boy Callum, who is now away at college. So it's more of a virtual presence than anything else because he's in Boston. And our younger son, Aiden, who is a senior at St. Thomas More High School. So really, my time has been focused on those two issues primarily. And as things open up, we do more things outside of the house. But it's been a lot of Netflix. It's been a lot of Prime. It's been a lot of reading. And there have been a few things that have been more normal. I've started to play music again with my friends. I have a 
cadre of friends that we all met each other. Basically, when our kids were in preschool together, you just stick with those folks. And so I will might go over to a friend's house and have a beer and play bass and pretend that I know what I'm doing. Other times we'll, you know, go see a movie with friends. Others will try to do a little bit of travel, maybe take a weekend to Chicago or an evening where we'll go to Bunny's or go to one of the other nice watering holes here in Champaign-Urbana. As things get better, and I do believe they're going to continue to get better, I think that there'll be more occasions to enjoy the arts and entertainment that Champaign County has to offer. One of the things about having a son who's musical, our oldest boy, Callum, is in the Berkeley School of Music in Boston, like to go to the open mic at Nola's Rock Bar, and I really enjoyed doing that. I think I'll be doing more of that. Heck, I might even play a little bit myself. Other occasions, we finally got to go to Craner for the first time a couple of months ago to go see the Chicago Symphony Orchestra when it came into town. That was terrific, and I hope to do more of that. It's just a process, but I can say this. I'll probably be hunkering down for the next six months or so just getting the new job that I have well and truly understood and getting that into a rhythm and also probably winding up my law practice. That'll take quite a lot of my time, but between all of it, there'll be plenty to do. Chad, before I let you go, there's always room for I have to ask. This is a big I have to ask question. I have just promoted you to the Supreme Court of the United States of America, and the number one issue on America's mind right now is Roe versus Wade. Use the Constitution, use logic, tell me how you're ruling on this. The way it was decided, I'm talking about Roe versus Wade in 1973, wasn't terribly controversial to the judges who decided it. I think that they found that there was a right within the 14th Amendment that was building for many years on notions of equality and notions of fairness for the people who were adversely affected. I think that the decision that came down this year was not so much a rejection of that notion, but was a political decision. Whether or not I ever find myself in a position to actually rule upon those kinds of questions. And I probably won't because Illinois is fairly straightforward in how it feels about those types of decisions. I think that it's important that people like me stand up and be counted and actually say that a woman's right to control her own health care is a human right. That includes decisions about when and how to start a family or to not have to get permission from the state to save yourself from bodily harm when there's an ectopic pregnancy or if there is, God forbid, a miscarriage that without the kind of intervention that usually involves an abortion, you could be significantly harmed physically or even die. And unfortunately, the decision that just came down, in my opinion, didn't think in those terms. I think it was a political decision. We could debate all day whether or not there is a substantive basis for ruling one way or another on the subject. 
And to some extent, it reflects a failure of the elected bodies of state government and federal government that got us to where we are. But to me, there's very little doubt that the decision in 1973 was a correct one. And there are ways to provide nuance as to why the Constitution provides those protections. And I would certainly not have undone them this year. And I believe strongly that however we do it, whether it's through the courts or what I hope to happen with the voices of people acting democratically in their role as voters, will make it known that it is the right way for us to go as a nation and in the protection of the rights of women and people generally. Thank you for listening to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Chad Beckett, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Elizabeth.